Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture reading uh, for this morning's sermon is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our eyes to see more of your glory through your word, open our hearts to receive. This is a season in which we celebrate the coming of Christ. May our hearts be ready to receive more and more of him this morning. We pray these things in his name and by your spirit. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Yes, I know I just read Hebrews chapter 10. We will get there eventually. But let's start with a classic Advent text, Matthew chapter 2. After all, this is the third Sunday of Advent. And throughout this season, we have been walking through an Advent series simply entitled Embodied Wonder. And in this series, what we've been trying to do is to dig into the implications of the incarnation. The incarnation, God himself taking on flesh. Jesus Christ, God incarnate. God embodied. We've been trying to just step back and wonder at that. The book of Hebrews as a whole wonders at that reality a lot. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Shades, Jesus had to take on flesh so that he could be tempted in every respect just as we are in the flesh. Yet, on our behalf, we're told he would be tempted, but he would not sin. He would live the perfect life that none of us could live, and then he would trade records with us. He would take on our sin and the death that it deserved. And he would freely give to any who would receive his perfect record of a righteous life. Why? So that we may draw near to the throne of God and find it to be not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. And one day, one day, the day will come, Shades, when Christ will make a second advent. He will come again, making all of creation new, and we will behold him on that throne face to face, embodied. Because, if you've been here, then you know that throughout this series, we have seen repeatedly 
Jesus did not come in his first advent merely to save our souls. He came to save the whole of us. He came to save our souls and bodies. This is why he not only died, but he rose from the dead. As a promise that we too would one day rise. He defeated death. Death comes after our bodies. And one day we will rise as he did, and so we shall always be with the Lord embodied, even as he is right now. Shades, this, through this series, through the lenses of creation, salvation, and the incarnation, what we have seen repeatedly is you were created, made to be embodied. And Jesus has come to save you to be embodied forever. And what we've been doing is saying that has to have implications for how we live the life of faith right now. If that's the beginning and end, those are the bookends of our story. Created to be embodied, we are saved to be embodied forever. That has to have implications for living embodied right now. That's what we've been pondering through this series. The implications of the incarnation for the life of faith that we are living right now. Because our faith, Shades, is an embodied faith. First and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, your whole embodied self. And to do that, we've been called into embodied relationships, into a body of believers. Last week, if you were here, what we did was we unpacked one implication of what all this means, of what it looks like. Namely, we talked about embodied wisdom. We don't have time to go back through that. You can catch the podcast if you need to. Something that's disembodied, but that's beside the point. This morning... I want us to unpack one more implication of the incarnation for us as a community, namely embodied worship. This is why we're starting in Matthew chapter 2, because I believe that in verses 1 through 12, what we observe, what we see, is embodied worship. So, read with me. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod king, behold, wise men, magi, it's the Greek behind that word, magi, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is another classic uh, Advent text, though it really doesn't belong to the season of Advent. It really belongs with the celebration of Epiphany on January the 6th, after the 12 days of Christmas. Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? This is my favorite, uh, well, actually, Christmas party thing to do. Um, my, my nerdy seminary thing. Allow me to geek out for just a second. Advent is the season that leads up to Christmas, which is not only a day, it also is a season called Christmas Tide. That season lasts for 12 days. That's where the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, comes from. It is not a countdown. It is a count up. Christmas Day is the first day of Christmas. 26th is the second day of Christmas. And what's it counting up to? Those 12 days count up to January the 6th, which is Epiphany. Epiphany celebrates the visit of the Magi. But I digress. None of that was important. The point is that this is a well-known text. But my thing, as we read through this text, as well as we know it, is do we ever stop simply to just ask the question, why? Like, why 
did the Magi travel from the east and come to see one who was born king of the Jews? Like, if you think about it logically, that makes no sense. Especially when you know that these guys were most likely from Babylon. What that means is that means that they would have to travel over 700 miles. More than that, they'd be traveling into enemy territory as the Jews were pretty good at remembering their history. If you recall Jewish history, they spent 70 years in exile and captivity in Babylon. They would not look favorably on Babylonians. And even if, even if they did somehow forgive all of that from the past, these specific Babylonians were magi. We... Uh, we polish up the magi, we decorate them with season, with sequins, and uh, place them in our nativities, even though they don't belong in our nativity scenes, but that's beside the point. I digress again. <laughs> magi weren't so polished, especially in Jewish culture. They were astrologers, magicians. That's where we get our word, magician. Those are practices that were forbidden amongst the Jews. So my question is why? Why would these men make such a long journey to a place where they would be seen as shady at best and all to see a baby who was prophesied to be a king of a people they'd once conquered as enemies? Like it makes no sense. Unless, unless we know what they knew. In the text, they said that they came because they saw his star. Which means they had to be familiar with a number of Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah and King. Prophecies like uh, Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a king, shall rise out of Israel. Or prophecies like uh, Isaiah 60. Verse 3, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is why we sing the song, We Three Kings. Verse 6 of Isaiah 60 says, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So here we are, when these guys see this star rise, they come to its light, bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, and they bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Isn't that why they said they've come? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Why'd they come? To worship. Which for some reason isn't something they felt like they could do from a distance. No, they needed to be present, face-to-face, embodied to worship this king. Because, I contend, worship is an embodied thing. It's not, it's not something that merely involves our intellect or merely involves our Emotions. Those are two extremes that most Christians run to when they think about worship. Many, many Christians think about worship either as a cerebral, intellectual exercise where I'm going I'm to use all my mental powers to focus really hard on propositional truths from, from Scripture, or, or 
Many Christians think of worship as an affectional, emotional exercise with a feeling that, and a, a focus on, on the spirit. But, shades, the, the reality is that worship involves our whole selves. Intellect and emotions, heart and head, and our bodies. Worship is embodied. That's what we see right here. Not only in the Magi's traveling, but we see it in their arriving. Look at verse 10. Matthew 2 and verse 10. When they saw the star from the prophecies that they had heard and diligently studied, that's intellect. Without it, no worship. They had to know truth. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's emotion. Emotion engaged. Without it, no worship. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Bodies falling down, united with heart and mind, their whole being worshiping, embodied worship. This is why, it's why they came. And shades, this is why, this is why we still come. Like each and every Sunday, why do we show up here to a place together to do this thing? Because worship is an embodied thing. And I contend embodied worship is what we need. That sounds like a really strong statement, especially in our day. Embodied worship is what we need. Need is such a strong word. I think we'd be more comfortable if uh, I said something like uh, embodied or gathered worship is a good thing. It's a helpful thing. It's a useful thing. But we get uncomfortable if I say that it's a needful. It's something that we need. Embodied worship being physically present, gathering with other believers, we, we tend to see it as more of an accessory to our Christianity. Like, like we can do this whole Christian life thing individually, worship and all. And even, even if I do for some reason want the whole corporate thing, I can do that digitally. Stream some music, hit up a podcast, or... I can even just watch a full-blown service like live stream in my jammies. Actually gathering with the body for embodied worship, that seems like an add-on. Shades, I think that's treating our Christianity like an Amazon order. Like if you like Christianity, you might also like corporate worship. Other customers who ordered Jesus also ordered the church. But it's an optional add-on. Like what? My question is, why do we feel that way? I think it's because we've embraced disembodied worship. I don't need to go to a physical place and be physically present with others to worship. And Shades, please hear me. There is a sense in which that is true. Like you can worship not in this place and not with all of these people. Like, that is true, but that's only half the truth. 
You can and you should worship the Lord individually, but what I'm saying is that individual worship cannot replace worshiping corporately. And I'm saying that both are necessary, and I believe we will see that one feeds the other. God designed worship this way. See, see this with me. Let's look at embodied worship through the same three lenses we've been using throughout this series, the lenses of creation, salvation, and the incarnation. So, number one, our first lens, embodied worship in creation. I made the claim God created worship to be this way. Where do we see that? Embodied worship in creation. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we read this. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it, that's his purpose, and keep it. Now, we read those words and we think they are about gardening. And they include that, but they include so much more. Scripture repeatedly uses these two Hebrew verbs, work and to keep, to describe the responsibilities of the priest in the tabernacle or in the temple. To work it, to keep, work, and keep. In other words, Genesis 2, I wish we had time to just sit and draw out all the ways that Genesis 2 is doing this, but Genesis 2 is presenting man to us as a priest leading worship in God's garden temple. I wish we had time to just sit and draw out the parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle and the temple. Tabernacle, temple, both of them designed to point back to Eden towards a man's original purpose, worshiping. That's how it's presented to us, leading worship in God's garden temple. And three verses after being given that purpose of being a, a worshiping being, Three verses later, we see Adam needs help in fulfilling that purpose. He needs Eve. They need each other. That becomes really, really clear by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve set out individually to decide what is right to worship. And wouldn't you know it, they fall into full-blown idolatry. Because here's the deal, Shades, inevitably, when we go at life individually, we necessarily are idolizing ourselves. If I say I need no one else, I'm going at this individually, I have made myself an idol that's in charge of my life. That's just default how individuality works. And you know what's interesting to me in this account of Adam and Eve? They go at this thing individually. They fall into idolatry thinking that they can choose the way of right, wrong, and all this. What's interesting to me is as soon as our first parents embraced idolatry, do you know what they ended up covering? Their bodies. Like, that which was made for worship and clothed in nothing but glory now becomes a source of shame, clothed for the purpose of trying to cover up sin. Like shades, do you see? We were created for embodied worship. Worship that involved our whole self, glorifying God with each other, all of it embodied. Is it any wonder then that salvation would involve a restoration of the kind of worship that sin stole from us. This is the second thing we need to see. Number two, 
Embodied worship in salvation. Embodied worship, if we were created to worship God together. Sin tears all of that apart. Let's see what happens through salvation. Embodied worship in salvation. I don't know that we get a more robust picture of embodied worship and salvation than the one in Hebrews 10. I told you we'd get there. So if you want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Since the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author, who we have no idea who wrote Hebrews, but this author has been arguing for nine and a half chapters that everything in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. The temple with its sacrificial system priests, the sacrifices, all of it fulfilled by Christ. Colossians 2 says it this way. It says that everything in the Old Testament was like a shadow, but Christ is the substance. If light shines behind my hand and it casts a shadow and you look at the shadow, you can get an idea of what my hand is like, but you do not see it in full until you actually behold my hand. That's what it's saying. The the Old Testament sacrifices, temple system, all of it was like a shadow. We could get an idea of what God was doing through the Savior that would come. But now that Christ has come, we see the actual substance. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, our author unpacks the implications of this. But what does it matter that Christ has come and fulfilled everything that the Old Testament talked about? What are the implications? I'm going to put it in a sentence and then we'll break it apart. To put it in a summary sentence, the embodied word, that's Jesus, saved us for embodied worship, which involves our whole body and the whole body of Christ. What are the implications of Christ's saving work and fulfilling everything in the Old Testament? The embodied word has saved us for embodied worship, which involves our whole body and the whole body of Christ. Let's take that one piece at a time. First, the embodied word saved us. So what we see in verses 19 to 20, look at it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We began this series in John chapter 1, where we saw Jesus called the embodied word. Words are how God has always revealed himself. So for Jesus to be the embodied word is to saying that God's revelation of himself put on flesh. Jesus reveals God to us because he is God. God in skin, the embodied word. And right here in Hebrews 10, we're seeing how all the words about salvation in the Old Testament became embodied in Jesus. In the Old Testament, God's people came to worship first at the tabernacle, later at the temple. And at the heart of the tabernacle and temple was a space called the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was made manifest. But only the high priest could enter into the direct presence of God. And he could only do it once a year. The Day of Atonement, when he would enter by the blood of a sacrificial bull. Then he could go through a curtain and enter into the Holy of Holies. But do you see what the author of Hebrews says? Therefore, in light of what Christ has done, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places. The author of Hebrews says, 
we, not just some high priest, we can now enter the very presence of God. How? Not by the blood of a bull, but by the blood of Jesus, he says. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Because when Jesus became our sacrifice, he opened a new way for us. Just like that high priest would make an entrance through the curtain into the holy place, we're told right here, Jesus made a new way through a curtain that he ripped open for us, the curtain of his flesh. In other words, it's a beautiful picture of what Christ did on the cross. When his flesh was torn on the cross, do you remember that simultaneously we had a tearing of the curtain that was in the temple in those days, symbolically showing that Jesus' death, his flesh torn open, tore away open into the presence of God. And it's a living way because Jesus' flesh did not remain torn in death. He rose again, and through him we have confidence to enter God's presence in worship. He is the new and the living way. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. Shades, we come by his blood, through his body, into embodied worship again. The embodied word has saved us for embodied worship. That's the second piece of our summary sentence. We'll see it in verses 21 to 22. Embodied word saved us for embodied worship. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in the Old Testament, there were two things or two primary categories that could keep you from being able to draw near to the Lord's presence in the tabernacle. Uh, those two categories were sin or being ceremonially unclean. In other words, the two categories were an impure heart or an impure body. If you had either, then you needed a priest to remedy the situation. The author of Hebrews is saying this is precisely what Jesus has done for us. Verse 22, our hearts sprinkled clean from an impure conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, Christ has made us clean all of us, not just part of us, not, not just our hearts. He doesn't want just our hearts. He wants our whole selves. Our whole selves are what he saved so that our whole selves can draw near to the throne of grace, embodied. The embodied word saved us for embodied worship. Great. What does that look like? That's what we see in the final pieces of our summary sentence. Let's see the third piece. The embodied word saved us for embodied worship, which involves our whole body. Which involves our whole body. Look at verses 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So earlier I said that Christians tend to run to one of two extremes in how they think about worship. Like either primarily seeing it as an intellectual thing or an emotional 
thing. But do you see how these verses right here point to worship as an embodied thing? Get it again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Do you hear the intellectual emphasis right here? Like we have a confession, doctrine, promises that we study, that we talk about, that we unpack and we embrace as our hope and we hold on to that hope without wavering. Why? Because he who made the promises doesn't waver. He's faithful. That's a logical argument. Like that we've got to understand and embrace intellectually, but worship is more than intellect. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love. You hear the emotional emphasis. Like on the basis of what we believe, we stir up one another. That's a really strong Greek word there. A more accurate translation would be provoke. But the reason we don't really do that is because we primarily think of provoking as a, as a bad thing. Stirring up can be a bad thing too. You know, get in there and stir things up. Provoking, it just makes me think of my kids. My kids love to provoke one another, not to love. But that's our call. In other words, with the same intentionality and intensity. With the same intentionality and intensity as my kids use to try to make each other angry, we're to use that to aim at increasing one another's love for God and for each other. Because worship involves our intellect and our emotions. And that's not all. Let's finish out verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our bodies have got to get involved. Worship involves our whole body. Mind, heart, and strength. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of that. Worship is an embodied thing. And it is a body of Christ thing. A church thing. Worship doesn't just involve my whole body. It involves the whole body of Christ. That's the fourth piece of our summary sentence. The embodied word saved us for embodied worship which involves our whole body and the whole body of Christ. Start back in verse 24, but let's read through verse 25. In Greek, 19 to 25 is one sentence. Paul, killing us all. The English translators have been really kind and inserted a couple of periods for us. Paul loves some run-on sentences, which they're beautiful. They're just really hard to break up and preach. Sorry, that was all for free. Verse 24, let's read through to verse 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does our author see as undergirding, supporting, fostering everything that they've said about worship so far. The local body of Christ. We stir one another up to faith and good works. Together. 
That's the only way that works. We hold fast our confession together. We draw near to God together because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus into his body together. This entire paragraph, it's in the plural. In fact, almost all of the instructions in Scripture are in the plural because they are given to God's people. We've been saved to be a part of a people. The, the author of Hebrews is calling us to habits of worship as a people, warning us against the habit of some who are neglecting this gathering. Read throughout the book of Hebrews. It's full of tons of warnings, and some of the most difficult that you'll find in all of Scripture, because the author, he knew people. He knew these people. And saw what happened to them as they drifted away from the church. They inevitably drifted away from Jesus. Shades, 22 years of ministry, I've seen the same thing so many times throughout my life. I truly believe that the first step away from Christ is the step you take away from the church. Because you're stepping away from the means the means that God has ordained to encourage your faith, to equip you, to sustain you, to hold you accountable, comfort you, love you, strengthen you. One of the primary means the Holy Spirit of God has used in my life is the people of God. I would not be a Christian without the church. Brad and I both uh, he, after our respective sabbaticals over the past couple of years, I remember talking to him after he got back from his, both of us said that one of the most, I don't know, shocking things or surprising things that we learned through our sabbatical that we just weren't expecting was how dependent we are on the church how much we need our brothers and sisters in Christ. We didn't skip church for three months when we were on sabbatical. We, we visited all sorts of different churches. But what we found was we desperately needed a place where we had embodied relationships, where people knew us and we knew them and knew their struggles. I didn't just need to stand in a room and sing with a group of people who all say they believe in Jesus. I needed to stand in a room and sing while staring across the room at mothers who have lost their children. I needed to stand in a room and sing with widows, with men who have fought their way through pornography to purity. I needed to stand in a room with saints who have suffered and suffered with me and I needed to see them declare the glories and the beauties of Jesus. The author of Hebrews, he is pleading with listeners not to abandon embodied worship. And Shades, I would plead the same thing with you. Don't neglect meeting together, gathering for embodied worship. And please, God, it's so hard to, to convince you of this as the pastor of a church, but please hear my heart right here. I'm not saying any of this 
because I like want to guilt you into being here every Sunday so we can boost our numbers or boost my ego. I don't care about that. If God so ordains that all of you leave this church to attend other gospel-believing churches and we go under and I'm out of a job, the kingdom continues. And I care not about the name of Shades Valley. I care about your soul. I would plead with you, whether here or or anywhere, just be somewhere, be, be wherever, be somewhere with a body of believers embodied. Because Shades, the reality is a podcast is not enough. Even a live stream is not enough, which is why we don't have a live stream. Like even in a post-COVID world where everybody has a live stream now, we don't have a live stream because it cannot replace what was created to be embodied. You were created for embodied worship. You've been saved for embodied worship. Jesus became incarnate for the sake of embodied worship. That's the final thing we need to see. Number three, embodied worship in the incarnation. We've seen it in creation, salvation, now embodied worship in the incarnation. We began this series in John chapter one, so let's end it there. John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled. Remember? I was talking about that several weeks ago. That's what that word dwelt literally means. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. We've talked a lot this morning about the tabernacle as a place of worship where people could draw near to the presence of God. But do you see what's happened here? Now in Christ, God has drawn near to us, not in a tent, but in skin. In the incarnation, God has come embodied so that we might know him in embodied worship forever. That's how the Bible ends. With Christ's second advent, Revelation 21 and verse 22. John writes prophetically about what things look like in the end. And he says, I saw no temple in the city. The city is a symbol of new creation. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In other words, in new creation, John says, we no longer go to a place to worship. No, we go to a person to Jesus, the Lamb, and we will see him embodied. Revelation 22 and verse 4. We will see his face. You were created for this. Saved for this. Christ came incarnate for this. And even right now, even right now, as we gather together, we can get a taste of this through embodied worship. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. 
strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.